This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. The most fun you'll ever have being scared. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. Hey there, it's Trevor. On behalf of myself, Lauren and Leah, welcome to the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 372. If you listen to the show regularly, first of all, thank you so much and apologies for the sporadic releases as of late. We've been all over the map instead of sticking to our regular Tuesday bloodletting, just life stuff getting in the way of the fun stuff. You know how it is. So we're working on getting it under control. On today's show, we go back to our regular format and bring you an extraordinarily fun chat with creative genius and filmmaker Kurt Wimmer. At time of release, his new film, Children of the Corn, is in theaters now and exclusively on Shudder March 21st. This is such a fun and nasty film. We talk all about it, including it being the only film in production during the start of lockdown and navigating all that craziness, conjuring these just awesome performances out of his young actors, developing the sonic journey, camera choreography, and so much more. Also, we dive into his phenomenal work on the beloved Christian Bale action cult classic, Equilibrium putting Mila Jovovich into a comic book come to life in ultraviolet and some fascinating stories in the life of the dude known as one of the best spec writers in Hollywood and the pen behind award-winning films starring the likes of Al Pacino, Angelina Jolie and an ever-growing amazing list. Episode 372 with Kurt Wimmer is now slaying. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. All right, joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio is a visionary and profoundly unique creator. When he first arrived in Hollywood, he spent a decade as a screenwriter with many monumental achievements along the way, such as adapting Michael Crichton's Sphere and writing 1999's multi-award winning Thomas Crown Affair that was directed by John McTiernan of Die Hard and Predator fame, among others. In 2002, he not only wrote, but produced and made his directorial debut with Equilibrium, a beloved and deeply influential dystopian sci-fi thriller starring Christian Bale. That's DNA was absorbed into the art of filmmaking itself and everything that followed. Elevating cinematic action sequences to places that no one had experienced before, dripping with style and story, earning cult status. He continued that trajectory of exploration, pushing the limits even further with the comic book come to life, Ultraviolet. He went on to pin Al Pacino and Colin Farrell's The Recruit, the Saturn Award nominated law abiding citizen, Angelina Jolie's four time award winning Oscar nominated Salt, 2012's Total Recall, 2015's Point Break, and most recently, the Mark Tondurai directed horror film Spell. The care and detail that he puts into all of his scripts is wonderfully rich, thoughtful, and inventive. And not only that, but he sets your neurons ablaze by breaking the mold of conventions, circumventing what's expected, and forging new paths. Each time an audience has had the pleasure of seeing him behind the camera, bringing those very adventures to life, all bets are off. The screen is saturated with imagination and the spirit of creativity. Each frame, an absolute thrill, as there is nothing normal about any of them. His projects are evocative, challenging, and they're fun as hell. His latest work is Children of the Corn in theaters March 3rd and on demand in digital March 21st. It is a downright nasty and terrifying movie that we had such an awesome time with and we're really looking forward to talking about it. We are incredibly honored to be joined by writer-director, the incomparable Kurt Wimmer. Yeah! yeah. 
Look, uh, thank you very much. Uh, someone's going to have to chisel really small to put that on my tombstone, which it deserves. <laughs> for sure, because that's a mic drop right there. Dude, man. We are massive fans. Thank you for everything that you continue to do. Thank you for making Children of the Corn. It is fantastic. We can't wait to talk about it. But first of all, we really want to know what kind of role the horror genre have in your life well growing up before your career let me start uh from the beginning uh it had it has a huge role in many in many respects i was um, a massive horror geek when i was growing up i mean i was famous monsters of Filmland all the way yeah. under my under my blanket with the flashlight all of my life and um i was a group of military kid and I in Berlin when I was about eleven years old, I actually started going around to all the military offices. You know, they have these these buildings that house all the you know officers, et cetera, in there. And um, I went around um, because we had one uh, station, USAF, the United States uh, Services station, that played to English speakers in Berlin. And this was during the Cold War. And, of course, that was all we had to watch unless we watched German TV, which I sometimes did. And I see speak German now because of that. Thank you, Germany. <laughs> but um, I all they played was Mexican vampire films. And, of course, I watched them because, you know, it was 11 o'clock on a Saturday. Yeah. And my mom was up. She's a night owl like me. So we would watch these things. But let's be honest. OK. And uh, so I, I, I made a huge petition i drew a picture of a skull the best picture i could do and i went around all the offices saw these officers these lieutenants captains and colonels and i said hi i'm 11 year old kurt wimmer and i want a petition to have more horror films shown on our local tv nice. and and uh, they all signed it I, I i someplace that petition is there but i realized after a certain point that they didn't understand me they that i thought they thought i was saying r films like r-rated oh, okay, films. Okay. i said let's get more horror films and they're like and they're like okay get this kid out of here before we go to jail for something bad oh my so, so um horror i've always loved horror and but let's be let's be clear i mean most horror films i grew up with the hammer films and all these mm. things they're not really horror films because they're not actually scary. Right. I mean, they're just not. There's very few and far between movies that are actually scary. And um, so I say that as preface to say that, you know, I I don't look at Spell or Children in the Corner. It's a horror film. Really? No, not at all. I mean, you know, they say they talked about Stephen King. You know, he's the master of horror. but And he is. But he's, you know, we look at Shawshank and Green Mile. Sure. And, and um, you know all these films, and he does a lot of things. And and uh, horror to me is something that has a, some sort of supernatural element in it. And uh, Children in the Corn or Spell, which borrows, borrows heavily from Misery. Let's be honest here. Uh, these are um, political stories in a way, particularly Children in the Corn. It's about children who are kind of being screwed by adults who are directing the future, their own future. And they assume their agency and they say, you know what, you're not giving us a vote, so we're going to take charge. That's not horror. That's a revolution. I mean, if we were make, if this were uh, a movie about the Bolshevik revolution, we wouldn't call it a horror film, would we? Even though they executed a lot of people. This is the same thing to me. And you can say, oh, well, he who walks is in the movie at a certain point. But I would counter, is he in the movie? Because if you recall, there these kids are in playing the cornfields that are full of dying corn that is 
covered in this fungus, you know, which is similar to ergot, these mycotoxins. And, you know, uh, clearly the protagonist, Boleyn, is hallucinating at the beginning of this film. So the question is, is this a horror film at all? Or is this really just a a violent political drama? I would say the former. That's the way I always looked at it. Wow, that's very, I mean, it's very interesting. I think that's part of the reason that there is that odd alchemy, that inescapable feeling of compassion and being terrified at the same time when watching it that is really unique. The kids are my heroes in this movie. Eden Edwards is, you know, uh, the producer, uh, Lucas Foster, who's a a fantastic producer, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but we were the only film, we we started shooting the first week of April 2020. Whoa! We were Like the the height, right? When everything was like, that's it. uh, We were the only film shooting on Earth. Wow. On Earth, for the entirety of our shoot. No one else on Earth was shooting. We were the only film in about 100 years that was the only film shooting on Earth. And that's largely due to my producer Lucas's uh, fortitude. He was just like, we're not stopping. We've come this far. We're going to keep going. And I was like, okay. Um, so, but it was all down to him. But, um, but yeah, you know. So where did you shoot it? Where did you end up shooting We it? shot it in Australia. And uh, the reason we shot in Australia was because... Um, that was the only place was warm in, in February. I mean, you know, you can, there's no corn in North America in February. Yeah. And I believe me, I spent a lot of time researching, where can we shoot this? And we had a schedule that we needed to meet. And I was like, you know, I've searched areas, can we shoot in Mexico? You know, but then there's problems with that, et cetera, et cetera. And ultimately we came down to is, and that was my, my first AD, um, Sean Harner was actually the one who said, listen, we've got to shoot in Australia. And we're like, uh, eventually rose. Okay. You're right. And we went there and we grew 50 acres of corn. Oh my God. And, wow. um, and then, then we, we shot on it and then we burned it. Oh, that's unbelievable. Oh, wow. Was that like on one of the biggest uh, sets where they film like the Avengers movies and all that? Is that one of the more popular sets? No, it wasn't or? set. We went out about 20 miles outside of New South Wales of, of Sydney oh. and we grew corn and we, we grew it. Um, you know, they shot a lot of movies, obviously, in starting The Matrix kind of invented Australia and invented Sydney. But interestingly enough, the, there was a, a Warner's movie, the Shang Li, I forget what it was called, that Warner's movie, oh, the right. Marvel movie, that it was the offices were right next door to us. And um, a few days before we got going, they, they went around at 11 o'clock at night and said, y'all are going home. You know, and um, and I was like, man, I'm just waiting for the knock on my door. About when we're going home. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, thanks to Lucas, we pushed forward. And again, we were the only people shooting on earth and we got, we did it. And nobody got sick. That's incredible. Oh, wow. Did anybody? Oh, go ahead. I was going to say growing that corn. Uh, oh, the irony, if you guys brought over the Monsanto corn, that'd be hilarious. Uh, well, I, uh, actually, I, I don't know. I don't think we did. Um, but that would be ironic. Um, I, I, I'm embarrassed to say I don't know what kind of... Well, I do know this. We grew... What we were growing was feed corn, um, which is used to feed animals. Right. There's two different kinds of corn. So I, by the way, I learned a lot about corn that I didn't know about. I'm not from Nebraska. I didn't know anything about corn. And the, the funny thing is, is if you go online and try and research corn and you say, hey, where does corn grow at this time of year? When does it reach its height? How high does it get? That information, nobody's asked those questions before until I did. And it's it's not available. I was hitting a blank wall when I was trying to figure out 
where can I shoot this movie in the first quarter of 2020? And the information wasn't there. But again, thanks to my first day, Sean Harner, he said, listen, it's pretty clear we have to shoot it in Australia. There's no place else on earth. And then we did. That's amazing. Rewinding a little bit because of what was going on at the time is something. And this is a, I love Ultraviolet, man. One of my favorite movies. Thank you. And you called it, man. The ultraviolet really kind of spells out, COVID. Like, in a way, COVID. Yeah. yeah. Uh, especially, like, have you seen the extended my the extended version? No, I've not oh, seen. Oh, you, you should because it goes any even deeper into the way the government is a try, tries to control people who are sick but don't want to acknowledge oh that they're God. sick. Um, and, and it's crazy. I didn't intend it. I didn't yeah. see it coming. Yeah. But well, you wouldn't, and, you wouldn't figure anything that, that, that right. wild no. would actually and, and happen. And people right? are wearing masks. Yeah. In yeah. The movie. And yeah. It, she's it, like six, but put on your mask. Right. And like you we crowd, crowds of people wearing, all yep. wearing masks. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's pretty crazy, but you know, you even look at equilibrium sure. and it, you know, and the, the uh, uh, government's attempts to control the way people think and the way they feel. Yeah. This is uh, more relevant today than it was in 2002 when I made that movie. Mm-hmm. But uh, and I don't take any credit for it. It's just some sort of strange alchemy uh, where somehow I got into the pattern of what was coming. Yeah. But it's absolutely true. Another thing that you called. I mean, dude, the Duffer brothers had to have been influenced by ultraviolet. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Six, you have six. And the Duffer Brothers did the eleven oh, Stranger Things. Yeah, it looks the same. The same. I, I yeah. saw that. You know, too. I was just like, it's, come it's on, the same name. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It looks the same. Like aesthetically, looks identical to what they did with Eleven. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And born in a lab. You and know, the, nurtured for uh, an experiment. Well, like, exactly. You see the Gray Man. What's it? No, I didn't. You see the Gray Man. No, gray the Man. Netflix. Uh, Gosling and yeah. uh, parts parts of it, but I haven't watched the whole thing. You know, his name was what six. No, no. He was a genetically what? engineered spy oh, named wow. Six. Unbelievable. And, and wow. I believe that they unconsciously took these things. I, sure. I mean, like, it's a little bit of a coincidence, but I believe unconsciously, you know, the Russos saw it yeah. and they said, eh, whatever, but, but they took it. I mean, come on. Oh, wow. So, but that's a mean, I mean, that's just a name. Yeah. But, but it's interesting. But it's interesting because when you... Think about having an array of genetically modified changelings. Six is the number. If I said pick a number from one to ten, I think everyone on Earth would pick six. So there's that, too. Yeah. I mean, what do you pick? Like, well, seven. And six just sounds better than anything else. Four is kind of limp, weaky. Three. Right. <laughs> <laughs> one, one is too simple. It's too easy. It's yeah, too early. Yeah, yeah exactly. So you got to get somewhere in the middle. So it's six. So six is great. Yeah. Uh, one more ultraviolet question. That script, just looking at the script, seems like an absolutely impossible movie to make. It really does. And you were tasked, like, with your second directorial feature to bring this insanity to life and you were doing things with the cinematic technology at the time that was like exceeding it you were doing things that hadn't been done before was that scary did you were you worried about how you were going to pull it off what was the process like of going i've got this insane lore these big ideas these crazy costumes these insane props this world building and to be able to pull it off 
Uh, I can't imagine that. I love I love vampires. I love vampire lore. I mean, and I think, you know, as we all know, vampires are sexy. And Mila is the sexiest vampire, in my view, that has ever been. I mean, and 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 also she's a comic book. You know, she was a walking comic book. And and I feel so fortunate because, you know, if I had had to stuff some other actor, actress into that role, uh, I don't think it would have worked as well because the camera just loved her. And as a comic book character, you know, she's that frenetic character, except with, pardon me, smaller tits. Uh, but, Wait, he's looking at me. <laughs> no, but you know, but yeah. but but she's other than, other than that, she's the frenetic character. Yeah, and come to life, and so, uh, but I, you know, I, I I'm only starting to just right now realize that I'm kind of unhinged when it comes to ideas and trying to make them work in film, but I never occurred to me not to do it um you know and we made that movie very cheaply it was like 25 million dollars unbelievable and and, um it was uh and that's why i had to go to china to do it um because we were able to get day costs that you know you couldn't find anywhere else um but it never crossed my mind not to to do it at all and i i don't think people understood the movie at the time i know there are people i appreciate the fact you like it there are certainly a, a number of people out there who really understand the fetishization of that movie about it's vampires and guns and you know an action i mean i don't know what else you could like but we also were one of the very few people to use digital uh technology in filming it right. was one of the first films, and it really was not ready for prime time at that time. So the movie ended up looking more sterile than I wanted it to because wow. they just didn't know what to do. This was, you know, 2005. And so, you know, it has this very empty look to it, which is not really that helpful, although it did allow us to bump up the colors, etc. You know, I blame um, George Lucas because he convinced me to do that because he, he was the great ambassador of yeah. digital film. He's like, you got to do it. Right. Like, and I was like... And then, you know, my, my, um, line producer is like, it's going to save us this much money. I'm like, okay. Um, so I don't necessarily regret it except for the fact that I have a, a clean, pristine print of equilibrium on film in 35 millimeter, which I treasure. And I'll never have that for, mm-hmm. for ultraviolet or any other movie that I've done because they're all just digital now. And there's something about being able to come in with the, the cans and say, there's the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People are still... Oh, sorry. What were you going to say? Uh, do you keep anything from your films? Do you keep props, costumes? <laughs> I'm not telling you guys. Yes. <laughs> you have to. No, 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 no. You guys are like, I won't make you out of here. I won't make you out of here alive. Yeah, you get stuffed like the other. Yeah, exactly. I'm not, I'm not stupid. Well, I will say, though, I mean, uh, a lot of stuff from all your films is like the replica prop forms. They build your stuff. I mean, it, it's it's carried on. People are fascinated. I, I have, this. you know, the guns uh, that were built on a Beretta frame from Equilibrium. I have a lot of those, especially is the ones that sort of uh, have the spikes come out of the. Yeah, yeah. You know, Ooh, amazing. I have, those, amazing. I have a lot of the swords from Ultraviolet. You know, et cetera, et cetera. That's so incredible. Cool. That's incredible. Yeah. And Equilibrium, what what is your take on, uh, that's a movie that people are constantly discovering, constantly discovering and going back to and just being like, oh my God, either I missed it or, oh my God, this is so great when I saw it, but it's constantly getting new fans. What do you think about that? How does that make you feel? Well, it's very gratifying because it got 
killed when it came out by the, the critics. I mean, it was like at 20% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was absolutely annihilated, which is, you know, you know, for a, a beginning filmmaker, it's really tough. Sure. You know, and they're like, they were, this is the dumbest thing we've ever seen, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I don't want to make excuses, but I, I think that for almost all my films that people don't know quite what to make of them. Sure. And, um, but... It was the most gratifying thing after the critics weighed in three days later, the audience weighed in and they loved it. And and I can't tell you what a rebound it was from like the deepest depths of despair and self-doubting. Like, my God, what's wrong with me? Sure. To then the audience weighs in and it's the diametric opposite in terms of their response. You know, they were like, we love this film. Yeah. And, um, so that was, that was, that was it. And, um, but it's sort of been always that way. Um, Thomas Crown Affair got poorly reviewed. Law Abiding Citizen got torn apart. Um, you know, but in, over time, the audiences seem to not give a shit what the critics say. Yeah. And they just, um, you know, it, it comes down to what they like to sit down on. A, you know, when it comes on, they're like on Netflix they keep watching it. Yeah. You know, even though they've seen it before, like I keep watching like law abiding citizens, especially one of those things where they just keep watching. Well, I think generally you make movies that are way ahead of their time. I think that's yeah. the thing. Like that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, look at equilibrium literally changed, changed the face of action cinema in every movie going forward. It, it's DNA. Like I said, is soaked into the vernacular. Like what you created Gunkata, or at least, showcased it made it popular right no i i actually invented it. i invented it tell us about that how did you well, well it was like just in my office i don't know why or how but i was like you know it's it it's just cool i mean i i don't i can't say how there is a, there's a, a mathematical algorithm for how i arrived at it. i was just like oh you know it would be cool which is the same thing i make about every decision you know it would be entertaining uh and and not only that but it's it's cinematic I yeah mean, listen i mean I, I, I'm not advising anybody to learn and cut it. But by the way, I want to tell you, I wouldn't advise you to use karate in a fight either. Sure. Or, or, uh, or even Taekwondo. You know, I mean, we've learned since then, thanks to UFC and MMA, that those are things are not highly effective. Karate can be pretty effective, but, um, uh, but it, you know, and I was a huge fan of course, of martial arts films when I was growing up, massive, massive, massive. But, you know, I, I had a, uh, I had a, a really great um, um, stunty on Ultraviolet. Her name was Ming Li, mm. and, uh, or still is, I'm sure. And she was an extremely talented Chinese martial artist. And, uh, and, and uh, she was uh, one of the Chinese wushu champions, female wushu, wushu champions. And uh, there's, two, there's two stories to this. First of all, she said to me once, don't tell anybody I can't fight. She was fantastic wushu. Like you watch her, you're like wow. But she knew she can't fight, right? She knew it's per it's performative. Yeah, it's performative. And then uh, another time, I was having uh, dinner. This is before Ultra uh, Equilibrium, actually. And this is what changed everything for me. I was having dinner in London. It sounds like a totally name dropping thing with Michelle Yeoh, right? Uh, yeah. Who was Michelle Khan at the time, I think. And um, and uh, I was having dinner with her. 
and um, she was Miss Malaysia, I think. So I was like flirting heavily with her, but it did to no to no avail because I think she was married to a billionaire. But, you know, I gave her my best shot. But I but I but I was a huge fan of Supercop too. Oh, yeah. Like I love Supercop too. I mean, I still love Supercop too. And I was like, I was like, wow, you know. Um, how did you? How long have you been practicing martial arts? And she said, "Oh dear, I've never done martial arts. I was a ballerina." Oh wow! And she that, said, "There you and go." She said, "I I I learned because I was a dancer. I was able to learn combinations, and I had flex flexibility and dexterity." Yeah. And I said, and then everything clicked in my head. I was like, "Oh, why are we fighting high fire hiring fighters to be in movies?" we need to hire dancers. And that's what happened ultimately with ultraviolet, which was we went through because ultraviolet as you're aware, it has Mila first of all, who's very tall. She's five ten, and uh, not many stunt girls look like her. They're, they, they are usually stunt girls around five, six and it's hard to get a five, six girl to double a five, ten girl. Sure, yeah. And they have specific um, talents. You know, they're either motorcycle riders or they're gymnasts, or, you know, they're TKD girls, you know, and, um, but you, it's hard to get started to, to uh, double one of the top models in the world. And I, I, we interviewed them all and I was struggling with this. And also, as you are aware, in ultraviolet, there's a lot of hand dexterity that needs to go on. There's a lot of oh, yeah. sword flipping. There's a lot of sword dexterity. Like we invented a kind of a whole new um, method of sword fighting in that movie. And I was like, man, what are we going to do? And I happened to be watching, I don't, which is weird because I don't watch TV. I can't imagine. I must have been a different human being back then. I was actually watching TV one afternoon and I, I saw um, uh, this uh, competition, which was uh, these um, uh, gymnasts, these uh, European gymnasts who would do, who would do uh, they would work with the balls, et cetera, and the ribbons, and, you know, all these things. And I realized, and, and they were all, it was clear to me that they were, had been uh, recruited in, you know, Bulgaria and Romania sure. and Russia and Ukraine because of their uh, uh, physical proportions, which were all very tall, very long. There were no like, you know, and, and their ability, their hand dexterity and their grace. And I would call my stunt coordinator and I said, these are the girls we need. We've got to find them. And so we looked up and we found out that where these rhythmic, they're rhythmics, they're rhythmic gymnasts, they all go to die in Las Vegas, which they go to work for Cirque du sure. Soleil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we went to, we said, all right. And then we went to Vegas and there's four or five of them there. There were four or five. Oh, that's crazy. And, and we said, come there. And we found, we found one. Um, it was Yulia Galenko. And uh, and then we found another girl who's a dancer from Hawaii. She was a hip hop dancer, and whose name's Alicia, and her last name escapes me in the moment. And we hired dancers. We hired both of them. We took them to China, and they were fantastic. I mean, if you've seen the oh, film, oh yeah, that's amazing. It's they, amazing. They, they are uh, they are great, but neither of one of them had ever fought in their life or even seen an action movie. But they were great dancers, and they were extremely athletic, and they were extremely um, elastic. And you could teach them a combination, yeah. and they would learn it pretty much right away, and and that's the thing to do. Yeah, if you try and do that with if you try and do that with like a karate girl or a TKD girl or a kung fu girl, wushu girl, 
you know, and you try and teach them anything that's outside the boundaries of what they know. Yeah, you have technique and stuff. You're yeah. screwed. Yeah. Uh, you're screwed. It'll take, you know, no offense, girls, yeah. but it'll take forever. But these girls were r- r- used to every day, new combination, new combination with, you know, with some of the best choreographers on earth. And so that was the secret. Oh, so such an and, awesome. And by the way, awesome and by the way, Alicia, Alicia Bailey, that was her name. Alicia, by the way, um, she'd never been in a movie in her life. Yulia had never been in a movie in their life. We took them and basically they were giving stars. Alicia is the most employed uh, female stunt double in, in the world. She's worked nonstop. Then she, she did um, uh, the James Cameron movie. Every movie. What was the James Cameron movie? That, like, Terminator, Titanic, none this now. Uh, Avatar, yes, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. She was the Avatar. She was everything. She's been in it. She's uh, doubled everybody, and I, I feel tremendous pride that I gave her a start. And and you know, she's created a tremendous life from this. But she was just a hip hop dancer out of Hawaii wow. at that point. And uh, and then uh, Yulia went on and. You know, it was her first movie and last movie ever. She was just uh, in dental school, and we said, "Listen, are you come, kidding? Come me? to wow. come come to China. That's for eight months." She did. She got nominated for the Taurus Award for Best Stunt Girl of the Year, and uh, you know, with five other movies like Superman and all these big movies, and then our little movie, and then she got nominated for Stunt Girl of the Year. And I was very very pleased about these things. You know, yeah, uh, that that that. Um, I feel like we kind of invented the idea of no, we don't need, um, you know, we don't need, like need like martial arts Peng, experts. Yeah, we, we need Dance. dancers. Yeah, <laughs> and you were the first person to put a sword in Miljovovich's hands too. She trained for a year and a half for that. She, she trained a long time. You, you listen, we did it. We went the Matrix style on that. You know, it's like we're training for three months before we even get there. She trained her ass off. Milu is great. She's. Um, She's one of the weirdest, smartest girls you'll ever meet. She's so odd, and yet, and when, and and and, but she's super, super smart. And but when you turn the camera on her, I've never seen it like it. So you've got the monitor here, and then you look at the monitor, and then you look over here, and there's one Mila, and then you look at the monitor. The camera absolutely loves her. And this is the thing about model. There's certain models. They say the camera loves them, and I'd never seen it in real life before, but. Every day I saw it with her, and it's like, oh my god, it's just, it's just weird. It's a strange chemistry mm-hmm. that a few faces in the world have with the camera, where the camera's like, okay, yeah, yeah, it's an alchemy, man. It really is. Yeah, and and she worked her ass off, and she was a, a very, very good athlete. You know, I mean, you have to try spinning that sword in your hand like that. Um, you know, and it, it's. You know, we were all doing it at a certain point. We're like, yeah, 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 of course. course. But uh, but it was it was something we invented. Like I've never seen a movie before, and it's not easy to do. Uh, But you know, we did everything we could with with swords in that movie. Changed the game, man. She's a really good singer too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 hell, she is. I I remember. I I remember in her room, she'd be singing with her her band listen uh, i love mila she's crazy as fuck but (laughs) (laughs) i wanted to talk about something that uh in that film equilibrium and in children of the corn something something that i love that you do is you use color in a really cool way to conjure senses and emotion out of a viewer like in equilibrium you desaturate the shit out of it almost black and white in some cases what you did with 
uh, uh, ultraviolet colors so bright, you they look wet. They look like you can stick your hand on the screen; they'd be wet if you touched them. What was your vision of the story you wanted to tell through color in Children of the Corn? What, what a great question! First of all, so all three movies are very different, right? Yeah. And um, you know, it, it's uh, it's interesting that I, when I look at what I do, is, is is I have a I think it's very hard to identify my films. I mean, if you look at Equilibrium and Ultraviolet, you say, okay, I can see it. But if you look at Children of the Corn, I don't think you could say, oh, that's the guy that did Equilibrium. For sure. Um, uh, first of all, um, Dion Beebe gets a tremendous amount of credit for the lighting in um, in uh, Equilibrium. And I'll tell you an interesting story. And I'll try not to name names. But Dion obviously went on to win two Oscars, I believe. Um, this was Equilibrium was the first big movie that he got hired from, I believe. And, uh, you know, he was just a kid from South Africa and, but I saw something in him and my producer, Lucas Foster saw something in him and, and we brought him along and we were shooting in Berlin and uh, we were shooting on film and this was with the Weinsteins and, um, nothing against the Weinsteins cause I, I got to make, I'm one of the few people on earth that got to make the movie they wanted to make with the wine scenes with relatively little interference. Um, but because we were shooting on film, we, our dailies were two or three days behind. So it wasn't until two or three days later that we saw our first dailies. And I remember I was sitting in the basement of uh, this uh, sports plaza that we were screening dailies for on film. That was back in the good old days. And I remember seeing it and I'm thinking, this is, I can't believe I'm sitting here. It's beautiful. You know, the the colors are, the blacks and the silvers are exactly as I imagined. And Dion did an extraordinary job. And then, um, I'm not going to name names, but it went from that to the producer standing up, one of the producers standing up and saying, we have to fire him. Everything's wrong. What? And, and I was like... I mean, I didn't know what to say. And uh, this producer happened to be a big DP himself. And again, I won't name names. And they said, uh, we have to shut down production. We have to find a new DP. And uh, I was like, I, I love the way it looked. I just absolutely loved it. And um, and I, I didn't sleep that night, obviously. I was literally like on a crucifix. Yeah, and I, I, and then I got up, and I, my, um, my line producer would pick me up in the morning and drive me to set, and uh, I said, "Look, if I said to her when I got on, I said, look, if Deanne goes home, I'm going home,' and uh, because I didn't want to make a movie that had much that had much blood on the floor." And she said, "You really mean that?" And I said, "Yeah," and she said, "Okay, I'll back you," <sighs> and um, and then that was it. Like it didn't happen, and then Dion obviously went in and win exactly, two, yeah, two Oscars. Yeah. And uh, I think the way Equilibrium looks speaks for itself. The, the lighting in that movie is, I believe, impeccable. So there's that. So and then I went on to do Ultraviolet, and and uh, I just wanted to create a comic book. Yeah. And so I use uh, a lot of primary colors, you know, and um, and that's why I did it. And then, but. Children of the Corn, however, is not in a controlled environment. It's all outdoors. It's a cornfield. You really can't control the color like that. So it's not a color-controlled environment, uh, really. So, you know, I I kind of adapt to the story. What what does the story demand? 
and you know how can i um amplify it yeah you know by using every tool that i have so i don't you know, have a lot of theories about color except you know what what what's going to work what i what i think is going to work best for the film and again like i said ultraviolet was a comic book movie it was i don't think people really understood that at the time because, which is weird to me but, but they weren't any comic book movies back then it was before yeah, yeah. it was before, before avengers all that stuff. yeah yeah, yeah before yeah. anything so the comic yeah. idea of a comic book movie was out of alien they're like what is this it looks weird right and exactly reasons i love it it doesn't obey the rules of other movies mm-hmm. and um but it was just like i slightly ahead of comic movies but you know you know clearly and then we got all these great comic book artists the best of the day to do the the opening credits oh with all the different uh, covers and stuff so cool man Uh, yeah which i i loved i loved working with those guys i I feel um so privileged to have worked with all the the, the people who are the stars of comic books at that time Mm -hmm. you know and they still be up for all i know and um and I have I think I have the original artwork. Oh, that's badass! Nice. You gotta frame cool. that up and put it in your in your collection, <laughs> man. That's, cool. that's uh, yeah. when you hit Eden. So you were asking me about yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, a, <laughs> I've got I've got those frames. Oh, that's oh, badass, man! That's so cool. When you hit Eden with that red wig, oh my god, it's fa- it's fantastic. That image of that, just her dancing on like with the cowboy boots on top of that car with that red bright wig. It's like poison in the brain. I had nightmares about that. Honestly, I had nightmares about that. And I had nightmares about that gas mask that she's wearing. Like just the the iconography that you managed to create in your films. It sticks out, man. And it lives. It lives in the audience's brain. Was there anything behind in particular coming up with that red wig? Even as uh, something as simple as that. Well, okay. So um, you've watched a couple of movies. So, you know, I use a lot of masks. Yeah. And, And Equilibrium. There was a lot of motorcycle helmets. Sure. Yeah. And um, they look really cool yeah. to me. But I did it for a practical reason. Like, because I was using the same stuntmen in every <sighs> shot. Yeah. And I needed to... I, Obscure I, their I, I, I needed to cover it up. So, yeah. I was like, I'm going to use black motorcycle helmets. And uh, I think... Uh, but it, it worked out really well. It looks badass. You get, fucking, yeah. you get to shoot them out and mm-hmm. blast blows everywhere. Yeah. So yeah. Real. Shatter and, everybody. And then I had the same issue in China because all of my extras, all my stunt guys were Chinese. Yeah. And nothing against the Chinese, but... You know, you can't have everybody standing around being Chinese because people are like, wait, are we in China? Mm. So that's why they're suddenly wearing gas masks. And so I use a lot of gas masks. And then uh, it was a story point in Children of the Corn, of course, because she they that children's home gets gassed mm-hmm. much like that Russian uh, auditorium got gassed back that's in right. 2002. But they took, the Chechens took it over and the, the Russians gassed it and they ended up killing half of the people there as well. Mm. So that was what that was all about. And but and so she's like, yeah, well, now I'm going to wear a gas mask. But it was interesting on a couple of levels. First of all, that red wig, me and Lucas Foster, the producer, we spent a fair number of hours discussing the color of that wig and dialing in the exact color of red that we wanted for that wig. So that took a minute. Um, But, you know, because she admires the red queen and that's why she's wearing the red wig. And the red queen is the person I think most known in literature for making the world the way she wants it to be. If the roses are red, she says paint of the roses are white. Mm -hmm. She says paint them red or off of their heads. And that's entirely Eden Edwards is she's both of those things. So that's why, you know, and also she's a kid. 
you know, she's a kid and we all did this as kids. You know, we all dressed up, right? And we, we played Cowboys and Indians or whatever we played. We all did it. Maybe we still do. You guys, I'm sure you do. <laughs> you know, but 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 they're kids still, right? You know, and she's wearing a cowboy holster, et cetera, et cetera. So that was important too to uh, to let the audience know that she's a child and she's still a kid and she's dressing up. And a lot of this is play acting, even when she's killing people. Yeah, you know, kids aren't adults, and um. Uh, a, a lot of it is performative. And so, you know, to ascribe to her the motivations of an, a, an adult, I think would be wrong. Um, she's living in a fantasy, putting aside the fact that they're breathing in these mycotoxins, these kids, and they may just be hallucinating and everything. Sure. And it's like the Salem witch trial. That was going through my head, put too. That yeah. on, put that on top of the fact that they're also kids and they live in a fantasy world. Yeah. So that was uh, th- that was the wig. And, um, uh, yeah, and it was red. <laughs> Getting Eden, uh, played by Kate Moyer, to capture those nuances you're talking about and that innocence meets evil, right? Sinister acts under the guise of innocence is a wild feeling to watch. And it, it, again, it was one of the things that made it so scary because it, it just feels wrong like you know the, the the dichotomy feels off and i haven't seen anything like it how did you communicate that to her how did she nail it so well, perfectly i'm gonna say two things about that first of all i i dispute the fact that she's evil she's to me she's the hero of the movie that's right and i uh me and my producer lucas foster and he'll appreciate me saying we went through endless he was team Bo bolin yeah which is elaine and i love elaine elaine's a good actor I was always Team Eden. I always saw this movie as Eden as being the hero of this movie because the adults are fucking up the world. There's no doubt about it. And that's not just in this movie. That's outside of this yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we know uh, things aren't going in the right direction. Let's just say that. They're going somewhat in the negative direction. And uh, a lot of policy decisions are being made about the future that the people who are going to have to live in the future do not get to participate in. They don't have a voice in. And so I, and, and that was, you know, I, I uh, admire of the elasticity of Stephen King's original short story and the way that you can take it and tell it in different times through different lenses. But I, I, I don't believe that telling it through the eyes of the adults is the right thing to do yeah. because uh, it's like saying there's a movie where there's people killing puppies and the kill, puppy killers are the victims. I, the puppies are the are the victims. And in this case, I, the kids are the victim. I don't understand how a movie is like, Oh my God, kids are awful. Yeah. It's those poor adults. Save them for the kids. To me, it was always like, yeah, the adults are awful. Let's talk about the kids. And, you know, I, uh, some people make, take issue with the way Eden decides to solve the problem. But I think there's a lot of people out there who will say, uh, yeah, it's revolution does not occur without blood being spilled, right. you know? And I, I really believe that I was, I, and I, it comes through in the movie that how sort of, I think lovingly I treated her character. Um, she's my hero, yeah. uh, you know, not, and, and then to the second part of your question, um, we hired Kate because we saw in her that she was 
inherently a girl boss. You know, that she didn't have to act. I mean, you can't act that. It's like Tony Montana. It's like Pacino. Like, you can't act Right. That. It's got to be in you, yeah. You've got to. It has to be 100%. And, you know, we went, we looked at every uh, young lady of that age in, in America. And uh, she was the one. We were like, okay, we believe. We believe that people slash kids will follow her. And uh, I think she's very convincing. And that she doesn't have to try. There's just something about her. And, you know, listen, she's a baby face. She's 11 years old in the movie. She's a baby face. You know, we're not casting a a 16-year-old or 17-year-old to play 11-year-old. She's 11. Did she she audition with a specific scene? uh, Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, for sure. A number of them. You know, particularly the scene where they're in the quote-unquote community center and she's saying... We're going to take this is just the beginning. Uh, other kids are going to see this. They're going to take their own towns, yeah. you know, because people are tired of seeing their futures frittered away, you know. And what happens if people come into our town? We're going to send them into the corn. Why? Because we don't need anything but the corn because the corn gives us everything <laughs> that we need. And she, you know, we watch her like, OK, we believe you. And um, so I didn't have to tell her a lot. And then also I want to say that her and I. Um, we we almost co-wrote this character together because there was the existing script, but I listened very carefully to her every day. And, you know, it's a very complicated film because the concept of children killing adults is really kind of out there. And it's a really difficult sell. Mm-hmm. It's a really difficult sell. And you have to try and find, to try, and I emphasize or try to, to find that sort of tonal it's tonal place where the audience will be like, come on, you know, where they can, they'll just buy in enough to enjoy it. And it's very tricky. And so I was never going to make her bend to the script or the tonality of the script. Like, this is what I wrote, act it this way. I listened to her every day and I went home and rewrote every night based on what she tonally told me about the character as she would play it. Because, a character in a certain tonal range can't say certain things. Yeah. You know, I mean, if a, if a character is a certain way, she can't say, well, fuck you, you motherfucker. You, you know, you're like, oh, no, you, you yeah, can't say that. Yeah, it would be jarring. Yeah, it yeah, out you, of it. you've got to. So I had, and both Elena, too, I listened to her, too. I needed to operate in their zone because, um, I, because unlike say equilibrium or ultraviolet which we are really alternate realities where we can be like okay you're playing characters that don't actually exist in real world these people you know Bolin is a teenager living in Nebraska those people exist uh, Eden Edwards is a 11 year old living in Nebraska those people exist so you have to actually kind of operate to a certain degree within the boundaries of a, some kind of reality Obviously, it's not entirely real, but you can't be. It can't be like we did in Ultraviolet or Equilibrium, where you know um, people are speaking in a more stultified, right. an imaginary way. Yeah, it has to obey some sort, of, and it's very, 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 very tricky. And if we even came close, I'm proud of it. The Boo Crew will be right back. If you enjoy there? being really scared. If you're not afraid of the unknown, if you found a friend in fear, then we have a friend for you. Hi. Samantha. 
Give me the police. The director who unleashed Freddy in Nightmare on Elm Street, Wes Craven, now brings you his most frightening creation. Get out of my house! She's killing people. Mom? <laughs> Sam? Sam? <laughs> You're so cute. Deadly friend. She can't live without you. First of all, uh, Elena's performance as Bo is outstanding. I mean, right. so authentic. I'm curious if Eden is your hero, where in your mind does Elena fit in in your narrative? Is she a victim? Is she against the hero? What do, what do you, you know? What do you th- Elena's also a hero, but I'm rooting. I, I root, you know, listen, if you've seen the movie at the end, is it's not like evil Eden. She's dead. Yay. No, it's tragedy. Yeah. It's a tragedy. Her and her monster go off to die. That's like a child's a children's book mm-hmm. to me. It's mm-hmm. very sad. It's like Puff the Magic Dragon to me. It's it's the saddest thing ever. Um it's uh, it, it, it's like uh, Americans have this obsession with criminals like Jesse James, yeah, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, Bonnie and Clyde. They love them, but we've made this rule where they have to die at the end. You know, even though we're like, yeah, rob that bank, kill those people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tony Montana, the same thing. We love it. We love everything you do, Tony. But you have to die at the end. Right. We've made that rule. And, and I'm just obeying that same rule where Eden... Even though I'm like, raw, go, 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 Eden. But I love um, Bo, too. You know, and then Bo, obviously, um, out Eden's Eden at the end of the movie. And, you know, it's a very interesting thing about Elena Campuris. She's an, a really a brilliant a- actress and a really unique human being. She's mm-hmm. a lot like Mila. She's, she's flat out insane. Right. Very eccentric. Extraordinarily beautiful girl. Um, extraordinarily smart. Very, very interesting uh, character. And, but the interesting thing about her is, you know, in the movie, she goes through a large range from being absolutely innocent teenager at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Like, a naive utterly naive character like oh i can save this we'll just do this we'll put the parents on trial how about that that'll work out and uh well it didn't work out i'm just i don't want to put any spoilers yeah, yeah, but it yeah. doesn't work didn't work out at all even smarter but, but when you get into like the scene in the car at the end between her and eden you know, on this on the road yeah and then and and elena she has two different gears one is her Oh, I'm an innocent, you know, American teenager. And then she has this really final girl personality where she's running through the corn and she's in the car and and she goes to another level where she's like, this is crazy. 
this is crazy. She she has this a strange action ability, and they're two completely different gears. So when I say Eden is my hero, I just mean thematically in terms of the movie. Like I think Eden was right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I root for them both, and um, and and uh, and also I don't like to talk down to my characters and sacrifice one. Like, oh, it's your time to die. Sacrifice. You know, I I think Eden um, went out on her shield. Right. Astonishing aspect of this film too is the language of the camera, the way that you swoosh into that cornfield at one point after the kids are on the plank. There's a great scene, almost like it starts like a drone shot or something. You go into the corn and you hit the highway after that. The way that the camera's absolutely unflinching when it comes to the violence, you don't turn away. We see some very intense things that these kids are doing. And you show it. You're not afraid to show it. What was the theory behind the language of the camera? Do you go in thinking, okay, this is going to be the eye of the audience, and this is what it, that needs to see? These are these are really insight insightful uh, questions. Oh, surprisingly, because <laughs> a lot of people don't don't see these things. And the interesting, you look at Equilibrium Ultraviolet and uh, Children of the Corn; they're shot very differently. Uh, I, I shoot what I see. You know, um, I uh, I give out, uh, all credit to the DPs for lighting it, but I frame everything and I coordinate every camera move and the way the camera moves. And one of the things, the reason I love to direct is because I'm fascinated by the the dance, the Tarantelle that the camera does with the actors. Mm. And and this it's a very very beautiful mathematical thing that is part mathematical and part artistic um, because these are not just shots. They're not just frames, you know, like, Oh, that's a cool frame. And they do that. The camera has to move from shot to shot in a way that makes sense. that flows like poetry. And not only that, but it has to do it in such a way that adapts to your shooting schedule and the direction you're shooting in. You know, because we were on a very, very tight schedule. It was a low-budget movie. And I had to get through our days, so I had to figure out a way to make the camera show what I wanted to show, and but move smoothly about, mm. you know, so we didn't have to, like, flip the set and flip the lighting here and there. Like, I was, you know, very concerned. I have to know. We're never... I, I have to walk in, you know, we're doing our text count and say, we're never looking this way. We will never see that. You can put all your equipment over here, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the camera marches through, and when it needs to, it is there to capture in a comic book framing in a lot of ways. Like one like example is when the horse, the whole thing with the horse yeah. and the guy in there, you know, the, the camera marches through the scene. If you watch it in a very um, um, logical way, but also in a way that cinematically frames certain moments not every moment not every moment needs to be framed it's like not every word that a character says needs to be highlighted but some of them do mm. you know it's like dodge this fucker yeah you yeah, know? yeah yeah boom and when i say that you know you saw exactly you see trinity and that agent yeah and you yeah. see it exactly that those need to be but the camera needs you can't just go set it up wherever and then cut it together the camera has to flow like a river through these things. And then 
you know, it hits a waterfall and that waterfall yeah. hits that frame. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Then, yeah. And a waterfall and a frame. And it's really quite complex. Um, and I appreciate you recognizing well, I, yeah, I, mean, I think it. any audience member will feel it whether or not they realize it subconsciously. There's no way you can't pick up on it. And the way that you use symmetry uh, to punch home certain things in the film is also astonishing, too. I mean, it just hits you. It hits you. Thank you. You know, it's like, we don't want to be choppy. You know, mm. you see a lot of things today which are just coverage. Right? Yeah. Or I'll put the camera here with, with, with coverage over the shoulder, close up, and then a wide shot, and then here, editor, figure it yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I, I would, you know, I, I, in fact, I, I am, you know, I, I shoot the master because it's the responsible thing to do, but I never intend to use it. I mean, I have... Uh, like there's different kinds of directors and no criticism to get anybody's style. Everybody has a different style, but I'm a one camera brain director. The three camera brain director, it, it doesn't really compute with me. I'm glad we have a second B and C camera to catch other things. And, and I do use them for sure. I'm like, Oh, thank God we have that. But I figure I look at things as me or you walking through the scene, period, one camera, a camera, what do I see? How do I see it? And so, yeah, it's a, a camera brain. And, you know, I, and I have a, a very interesting way of the way I, I do that, but perhaps for another time. Mm -hmm. Did anything creepy happen on the set that wasn't intentional? Yeah. COVID. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. I can't even imagine. I know that my kids were scared at that time, just... Oh yeah, of COVID. yeah, all and the I, kids being on set. Um, you know what? What was their attitude well, like? What was did going I say on? this already? We were the only film shooting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. So here's here's the crazy thing. So uh, you know we're prepping this in February and March, right? And then in February, late February, there was this thing called it was. It wasn't even called, it was called COVID-19. They called it something different uh, yeah, back then. Maybe just a coronavirus, they, something. Yeah, it was like, corona, yeah, yeah, you'd hear whispering, then, right? That's not going to come here. Every day, no, every day it would get a little louder. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. We were all part of this. <laughs> yes, yeah. And then it was like, eh, this and this. And then you're like, what the fuck's going on? And then it's like, oh, it's, it's you know, it's, and then, and then I remember, you know, we were in the pre-production and I remember the first day there was, it was up in Washington state, state the first uh, case appeared in America. Like, yeah. Oh shit! I bet man, I bet six people are going to die from this. You know, we never dreamed of taking. But anyway, it was like all of the doors in the world started slamming shut, and we we're in our offices, and everything around us is shutting up. Every film in the world is shutting down. Every single one of them. Every single one. They were all exactly right. like. You know, it's a big deal to put so much work into pre-production. You know, you're just so many hopes and so many dreams. I mean, you cast people, you know, you've designed sets and you've got all these ideas. Course, yeah. And then the concept of, and, and it happened to so many people days or two days before they would shoot. They're like, that's it. Done. Go home. It happened to, you know, as I said, the, the Marvel movie right next door to us. They came at 11 o'clock at night and they knocked it on and said, you're going home because that's a publicly traded company. We weren't. So, oh, wow. And, and uh, thanks to Lucas Foster, he said, you know what? And everybody else is, is um, saying, uncle, I'm going forward. And he did. And I'll be forever grateful for him to that. But uh, it was to the point where Elena, I mean, uh, Kate, Kate Moyer, who's Eden Edwards, she's Canadian. 
She flew to Australia. She connected in Los Angeles. It's a long trip for a little girl. Yeah, of course. Okay, flying with her mother. When she was in the air in, over the Pacific, the endless Pacific, Australia shut down. She got on the what? plane in LA, oh like, we're going to go. She said, I'm going to go to Australia, Sydney, Australia. It's, it's summer down there. Yeah. It's winter here. It's going to be nice. Going to get off the plane. We're going to like rehearse. I'm going to get my costume fitting. It's going to be nice. She got off the plane. They said, welcome to Australia. I'm like, get your ass to the hotel. You're in quarantine for two weeks. God. Enjoy yourself. You know, I mean, literally, like she had no idea. She got off the plane like, oh, God, that was a long trip. I've yeah. been traveling for 20 no, hours. what the hell? What's quarantine? Now, get your 11-year-old ass into quarantine. And uh, the same thing happened to Elena, too. But Elena had like, she had like 12 more hours notice. And it literally said to her, uh, if you go, you're going to have to quarantine. And she had to like think, am I going to do this? Is this worth it? I mean, like there's a national, I mean, an international worldwide right. pandemic going to happen. Am I going to be stuck yeah. there am for a year? On, or am I going to die? Yeah. I'm going to get on a plane, you know, this, this cigar tube uh, full of miasma of disease. Who knows? Yeah. And she said, you know, I'm doing it. And I'm forever grateful to her too, because as you point out, she's great. And uh, if she hadn't got on it, I wouldn't have a movie. Mm. Either one of them. It was no movie. Zero. Like, there were so many things that could have gone wrong. So that was scary. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Another terrifying moment. One of my favorites in the film is when we get to a clearing in the cornfield and the kids are singing, loves me, loves me. Oh, yeah. But then the score starts to mimic the rhythm of the song and it's awesome. Did you envision that moment yourself? Or was that something the composer came uh, up with? Yeah, How did that? I, I actually came up with that, um, and I'm, I'm I'm pleased to say, um, it, you know, there the, that that it works really well. Yeah. It was really, it, it was really um, organic, and there was, I believe, a, a Norwegian or Swedish woman who, who we asked her, "Can you come up with some some simple tunes for the girls to sing?" And she did. There were three, and I I picked one, and that was in the movie. But there was in we were in post, and there's a lack of cohesiveness in the film. And I I said to my producer, "Listen, we're missing a big opportunity if we don't take that little song they sing and make it the fundamental theme of the movie." And uh, sorry, Lucas, but it took him a long time to hear me. Mm. But literally in the last three days, he did. And we went to him and said to, to our composer and said, can you actually turn this into something? And he did. And it changed the film. It really did because that's it became, highlight. you know, thematic because yeah. that's, you know, he who walks. And uh, it worked really well. It's kind of, it's, yeah, it's like a, there's, there's a real heartbeat of the film at that moment there. It's so important. Yeah, the floor drops out. The floor drops out at that point. Yeah. You know, so, say. Music's so important in movies. And on, it's, on it's one of the most important things. And sound yes. is so important. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I was just really curious, and you mentioned the line, he who walks, uh, in terms of writing the script, what was your decision to not keep the full quote the, the full line in the movie well it's just too long i mean it's like he who walks behind the corn on thursdays at three and five it's not that long you know look i mean he who walks you get it yeah right. i mean it's even it's got more mystique even i'd because say because if you say he who walks that already implies that they shouldn't be walking yeah so that's scary right yeah there. yeah yeah i mean where they're walking uh, is irrelevant becomes, yeah well it's not irrelevant but it's a bit of anti anti-climax mm. it's like he who walks behind the seven yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> he, 
you know, but he who walks is, is, you know, that's, it's, and it's just like uh, children of the corn, in my view, the title alone itself is extremely evocative and, you know, and Stephen King came up with he who walks. And so, and, but it was a, you know, it was a decision. I don't know if any other of these movies has actually ever shown he who walks. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I, I, you know, I thought about it a lot, you know, because there's something to be said about the concept that there is this uh, sort of psychological abstraction out in the corn that's driving these kids. But then I also said, well, wait a minute, people are paying $10 potentially to go see this. Do they really want a psychological abstraction? And I thought, and so, you know, three quarters of the movie are psychological abstraction. But I thought at a certain point, you know, we have to get to the sex Mm-hmm. And um, so that was the decision, and I went, I, I went with it. And I, I think they made it. A, personally, they made a plenty of movies where they didn't show. You know, they were hit the sausage, mm-hmm. and so we said, "All right, let's do it." Yep, yep. Yeah. It's a good thing. It's rewarding as a viewer. Yeah. I'll tell you that. By the what, way, I, I love the, um, the Billy Mummy reference. The which one? The Billy Mummy reference. Uh, the witching oh, means the court of the Twilight Zone episode. The Bill Mooney effort. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, the footage. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, this is where King. You know, he's he's great. He's a genius and great. So great what he does. But listen, corn has been freaky to people since the beginning of time, and that's why he was so smart to say children and corn. Both those things are inherently creepy when you put them together as a force magnifier and they're geometrically more creepy children and corn when you put them together a children's creepy a child's creepy a corn's creepy put a child in the corn it's super creepy yeah so yeah. <laughs> wish the adults into the cornfield <laughs> well you know you know again i i see it from the children's point of view um this adults need to go into the cornfield yeah. yeah but um but yeah but i mean even going back to that twilight zone right. clearly Already, it's like, get them to the cornfield. Say no more. Yeah. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. he didn't have to say anything more than that. Then we know that's not good. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. like, you know, it's like, get them to the 7 Eleven. Like, okay, that's great. I'll get a slushy. This is going to be awesome. And I get some peanut butter cups. But then you say, get him to the cornfield. You're like, oh, that, shit. That, that, can't be, that can't be good. Nobody's like, I'm going to get in corn on the cob. Like, this is going to be worked out exactly. poorly for me. Exactly. So this was corn that was made. To feed animals, right? Yeah, that- it, it was feed corn. I learned a lot about corn. It so was nobody gr- ate it. I'd be so tempted. I love corn. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's different. And Australian corn is different from an American corn. I think American corn is, is pretty awesome. It turns out. I learned a lot. Nothing. Sorry, Australia. Your corn's great. But... Um, uh, if you were there, you you probably wouldn't want to eat it. You wouldn't be in. You probably wouldn't get hungry. You probably wouldn't have been hungry making this movie. You were like, "Man, I'm so hungry." <laughs> right? It's corn. Crafty it's just, was all corn. It, it's corn. Not, yeah, but, it, but that's the way it is with anything. If you're like making a movie it, with you know cows, you probably don't look around and say, "Man, exactly." These things look tasty. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, they could have like, printed like, a popcorn corn, and that would have been excellent wrap gifts. See, yeah, well, I want a wrap gift. You know, would be a. I, 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 I was getting so crazy when I was writing the script that at one point I had um, the creature burning and all the corn 
popping. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, amazing. <laughs> no, no. It, it would have broken. Uh, it, it, I wrote it. I wrote it, but it would have broken the walls. It would have broken the walls. Sometimes, I, I hate to admit it, you have to restrain yourself. Sure. Alternate ending. We have an alternate ending. Oh, that would, wow. That would blow your mind, but I'm never going to tell anybody. Oh, Why? Did you even film it? No, we filmed it. You filmed it? Yeah. We ever going to see it? It's not a, it's an additional ending. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe on the DVD because what? it's cr- it it changes everything. Really? Wow. Oh my god. Yeah. I want to see it. Uh, yeah, hell yeah. Did well having Stephen King's name in the lineage of this film, right? Attached to it in any way at all, right? In title. Was there any pressure or expectations? It, it doesn't watching it it does not feel it. It feels like you took a kernel, not to no pun intended, and, and we're able and we're able to Come run on. run wild with it. Yeah, was that the fact, or was there any pushback or expectations that? Either- I, listen, I, I don't feel I respect him tremendously as as a writer, but I've been doing this long enough where I'm a writer too. Yeah, and I I feel like I I felt like I could recapitulate his voice to a certain extent. Mm. Um, you know, I felt like. If he told this story through the children's eyes, it would look similar to this. That's what I thought. Yeah. I could be wrong. But, um, you know, it's it's just like ultraviolet or equilibrium. I mean, when you look back, you're like, this is freaking nuts. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you doing? But at the time, I, I never think of these things, thank God. Um, because otherwise, I would second guess myself. Right. But, um, uh, no, I, I, I thought, I mean, I, I have no idea what his opinion will be, but I, I thought that um, I was just honoring uh, this great template that he invented about generational violence between, or generational conflict between adults and children, or between children and adults. And I, again, I think this is a story that will be told every generation, I think mean, 10 years ago. Listen, I don't think they should make it every two years like they do, like right. they have been. I think that's just bullshit. But I think in 10 years or 15 years, they should definitely remake it again. And I think it'll look completely different, mm-hmm. you know, um, because I don't think kids, you know, teenagers ever get over wanting to kill their parents at a certain point. Sure. I mean, who has not wanted to kill their parents? <laughs> I, I and, and this is why I, I was... You know, I said, this is a great thing that will always be sort of commercial, particularly for horror films, which are driven by a teenage audience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think the concept of uh, of breaking the, the chains of control that the adults have on them is always going to be appealing yeah. to young people. Well, it's like a primal instinct. We all feel, yeah, we all feel it. Yeah, it's it is. And, thing, yeah. and, you know, it is a, a guilty pleasure. Yeah. You know, Mom, I love you, but I want to kill exactly. you. You know, this is it's <laughs> like, it's like a Jim Morrison, like, yeah. Dad, Father, I want to kill you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. I wanted to just, everybody listening, you're doing something so freaking cool, and it's been fun to watch. You've got this YouTube channel. Oh, where no, you we know can about actually that? watch you create a script and it's called fortunate son and it is so cool because i've never i've never tried to write a script i've never known anyone who's sat down and written a film script before so to be able to sit there and kind of watch you 
in real time, really, like you see the like the final draft screen. Like he's got the camera on it, that like sped up in time so you can kind of you know see yeah, the, the, the raw, overview. The raw version's there too. The raw, if you're a masochist and you want to watch, watch the all thing. three hours, you can watch every word. But that's draft. amazing. Like oh. each word, you you can feel you pulling it out of the ether and, and being inspired by things and then talking about it and the delete button. And it's just an incredible thing. Did you, what compelled you to let, to peel back the layers a little bit and let people in on that? Well, through the WGA, they have this quote unquote mentorship program. And um, I don't really like that word mentorship where I have a lot of writers, younger writers that I've worked with uh, lots and lots of them. And I've worked with them for over a decade. Wow. Uh, different ones, and I get new groups all the time. And because, you know, I, I'm not a doctor, and I'm not a paramedic, I'm not a fireman, and, and I can't cure cancer. There's not much I can give back. But I, one thing I do know about is writing screenplays, I think, and, and making films. So I, uh, so they arrange these, these groups, and, I, and they're all good friends of mine. And I, I wanted, to, I said, you know, this is really good for them, but they're only allowed, they're, they've been given this window because they're new WGA members, etc. But there's a lot of people out there yeah. who are talented, who don't live in LA, they live in Wichita or wherever. And they have this dream to um, write a screenplay, you know, because that's the easiest way or the best way to break in a spec screenplay, write sure. a script, have someone read it and say, oh my God, this is great. And then next thing you know, you've made Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, you know? yeah. Then, or Boondock Saints or whatever, right? Yeah, the dream, that's the dream stars. And, but, but there's a limitation um, uh, that stops people from doing it, which is informational, that they're, they become intimidated by like, it's such a, sorry, such yeah, a yeah. big, a, a big snake to wrestle and they don't know how to, where to start. And they wouldn't know what to say when they got there. They wouldn't know what to do what to got there when they got there. They don't know. There's so many things they don't know. I mean, and I've spent a lifetime learning all these things. And there's so much detail that goes into it. And so I said, you know, I do this all the time. I write constantly. You know, I'm one of the last spec writers in the world. Like, I just write spec screenplays all the time and i think most people when they sell their first spec script they say thank god i never have to do that again sure. and they just go on to writing assignments which is the death for any career because you can't survive by writing assignments because the thing about writing assignment work is that certainly not everything gets made yeah by far not everything is it and everything that doesn't get made impacts your career and your higher ability whereas if you write a spec script and it doesn't sell nobody cares it doesn't hurt you at all. But when it does get made, it has rocket fuel to your career. Sure. So writing spec screenplays is, you know, I'm a huge, huge champion of creating your own ideas and going out and writing them and then going and selling, figuring out a way to sell them and get them made. That's the quickest way, I mean, you know, to becoming Tarantino. It's the only way. Yeah. You know, all the, you know, whether it's Cameron or anybody, all the best writers are writer-directors. You know, and so I said, you know, I do this all the time. Why don't one time I turn the camera on myself and we'll start with a blank page. And, you know, for those people who are interested, if they really want to know, this is what it's going to take to go from A to B blank page to finish script. Then I'm going to include all of the texts and the emails and the phone calls with my agent. Oh, How wow. are we selling this? You know, what is the strategy? And then God willing, I mean, who knows? I don't have a crystal ball. If we sell it, you know, then we got to go to directors, actors, 
all of that stuff, then, God willing, you know, the politics of getting movies made is very complex. It's not just about writing. You know, the reason I'm, if I'm successful, it's not just because I'm a writer, but also understanding or having learned over the hard way over many, many years, the politics of getting movies made, of moving them through the system. That's more than half your job as a writer. And a, a, a lot of writers shoot themselves in the foot. They've got, they're very talented. They've got great scripts, but you know, they fly off the handle and then people are like, that's too much trouble. Um, so you, you've got to write a great script and you've got to get it made. And then um, the whole thing, getting it made post-production if we can, let's see what happens. But I said, you know, let's take people on this journey, succeed or fail. And um, uh, for anybody who wants to learn, there's definitely going to be something to learn there. But I, I, I don't know how you, how do you know about that? I found it. I came across. I'm a fan just, of yours. And I just like, yeah, I started watching it. I'm, I'm so curious about it. Weird. I love, I love creative people. I love uh, dissecting the process and seeing how different people create. It's fascinating to me and it's, it's a, a real joy to watch. And you could watch it listening. Cult Kino House uh, on YouTube. That's K-U-L-T-K-I-N-O-H-A-U-S. One more question about screenwriting that I've always been fascinated about. When an actor goes to audition for a part, doesn't get the part, learns a couple lines, does the audition, doesn't get the part, you know, okay. Confidence, maybe that day is down, whatever, it goes on to the next thing. When a screenwriter pours over, their, puts their heart and soul into this tome and delivers it and it, get pa- it's, you know, it gets passed on. What, is there anything you can say from what you've learned, how do you find that fuel again? How do you stop that from you know, knocking you down and just making you just give up? What is it that keeps you fueled and, and keeps you inspired and say, fuck that, I'm doing it again. I'm going to do it again. Or I'm going to take that one that I just wrote and I'm going to keep standing behind it and be my greatest advocate because I believe in it. Well, there's a, a number of answers to that question. First of all, I've written hundreds of screenplays. I mean, and which is kind of sad when you think about it. I've only made like 23 or something like that films. Um, you know, so it's actually a poor average. Most people who've never even written one script have a better average than me because, you know, I've had a fraction of my films have been made, although I believe that all of them can get made at some point. Yeah. But the real thing is, is, uh, is it will always hurt at first. It will always hurt at first. Breakups always hurt the first time. You know, puppy love that, you know, when you're 17 and, you know, your girlfriend, or your boyfriend breaks up with you, nothing ever will hurt you as much as that in your entire life. Mm -hmm. You know, even when you get divorced later on. So there's that. So you just have to go through it. And at a certain point, though, um, first of all, write well. Write well. Don't write shitty scripts. If you write shitty scripts and people pass on them, then you know, maybe you should feel bad about it, but, but there's a lot of reasons that people pass on scripts and it's not because of the writing necessary. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of factors. Why, what are people are looking for? They're like, well, it's not the genre we're looking for. We were looking for, you know, a horror film. We were looking for John Wick film or the budget's too big for us. You know, there's so many, so many things that go into it that you have to really understand when people read a script. Um, but also, you know, uh, right, and you write a script, A, make sure it's a really good script. Make sure it's marketable to, you know, like Stephen King does, to a large audience. And second of all, don't give it to anybody who's going to pass. I mean, smart. Like, I do. I mean, but, but you know, if you just like throw it out there, like, here, read my script. They're like, great. But, you know, we're, we're trying to make um, 
Oscar winning biopics and this is taken. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. When you're pressed on my script. But, you know, so you have to be very uh, selective about what you, you do. And also, just write and keep writing. Everything needs to be in your rear view mirror in this business. Everything needs to be in your rear view mirror. Uh, if you stop and obsess about what other people think, you're dead. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely going to die. And, you know, that's honestly, if I'm going to be really frank, one of the reasons why I'm writing Fortunate Son right now is because I know I'm going to go into this difficult moment where I'm releasing a film and some people are going to like it and some people are going to hate it. And it's always, it always, it's never good. But I'm, I'm writing the script, so I just have something else to do with my head. It's like, I'm just like, whatever, I'm writing, here's my next thing. I'm on my next thing. Hmm. And that's what you always should be. That's my advice, I guess, is always be on to your next thing so that when they call the past, you're like, oh yeah, okay, that's fine because I'm halfway into my next thing. That's actually, now that I think about it, really good advice. That is, that is really good advice. I love that, man. I love that. And we are very excited for your next thing. Uh, it's absolutely a joy to have you creating in cinema. And uh, again, everything you do has moved the needle off the scales in different directions and uh, maybe in ways that you don't even realize, but uh, it, it affects everything. It's, it's affect pop culture. It's affect, affected entertainment, entertainment and cinema um, in everything you do because of the uh, approach that you have and the singular vision that you bring to everything. It's uh, it's astonishing, man. We appreciate it so much. Man, thank you so much. I, 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 I won't disagree uh, here. But, but, um, I'll, I'll, again, like I said, I, we have to get somebody who chisels really small to put all this on my, on my headstone. Well, Kurt, congratulations on this film. It's yes. absolutely kick-ass. Uh, I don't know what more can I say, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank, thank you. Thank you, guys. Much appreciated. It was great to be here. Mm. I love your place. No, dude, thank you. And we're going to yours next. Oh yeah, yes. no, 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 you, you, you are. You got to set have, it up, man. I have yeah. such interesting things to show you. Come over, we have dinner, and uh, some pizza and some beer. I and, do and, um, love to. Yeah, no, there's, I got some interesting stuff. It's like I can't wait to to we're peas in a pod. I can't wait to explore your collection, dude. This is gonna nice. be awesome. All right, man. Thank you, Kurt. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode three hundred and seventy-two. Special thanks to our guest, Kurt Wimmer. At time of release, Children of the Corn is in theaters everywhere now and lands at Shutter March twenty-first. Production tracks provided by the legendary Powerman five thousand. Till next time, on behalf of myself, Lauren and Leo, it is the Boo Crew saying, "Sweet screams." Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.